Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities with Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Governor Kathy Hochul says New York State health officials are on the lookout for a new COVID-19 variant circulating in some parts of the country that may be able to evade prior immunity. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt spoke with the state's health commissioner, who said this week it has not surfaced here yet. For the past couple of years, the dominant strain of the COVID-19 virus has been Omicron, with numerous subvariants. But the new variant, known as BA286, is genetically different than Omicron. It's been found in Israel, Denmark, and South Africa, as well as in the states of Michigan and Virginia. The World Health Organization has classified it as a variant under monitoring, but it has not yet upgraded the status to a variant of concern. State Health Commissioner Dr. James McDonald says the mutations are significant and could mean that the new version of the virus might be more severe than previous recent strains or could evade prior immunity. But he says scientists don't know yet. This one's different, and that's why we're paying attention to it, because it's really different than the Omicron subvariant. So right now, we haven't seen it in New York popping up in different parts of the planet. We're paying attention to it. And the big question is, is it going to be a problem or not? And that's what we're going to try to find out. The state health department's Wadsworth laboratories are intensifying their analysis of wastewater across the state to try to detect any sign of the new variant. They're also collecting more samples of positive COVID tests conducted in healthcare settings to determine if BA-286 shows up. The news comes as COVID-related hospitalizations are increasing, although they're at a much lower rate than at the height of the Omicron wave between November of 2021 and January of 2022. It also comes as schools are reopening for the fall. McDonald and Governor Hochul recommend that schools review current CDC guidance and promote vaccinations and testing. They say schools should also make sure classrooms are properly ventilated and that teachers reinforce proper hand washing and other healthy practices. But McDonald said there's no cause for undue worry right now, and he's not changing his recommendations on what to do if you feel sick. If you do have signs and symptoms of covid Get a test. If you're positive, talk to your health care provider about whether treatment is right for you. It was for me. Helped me quite a bit when I had COVID. McDonald says he felt better after a few days of rest, and he says most people who come down with COVID in the next few weeks and months should have a similar outcome. The newest variant raises the possibility that a new vaccine due out later in September aimed at providing immunity from the most recent Omicron subvariants might not be as effective against the new strain. But health officials still recommend that people should get the vaccine when it becomes available. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. A group of professors has filed a class action lawsuit against Vassar College, alleging the historically women's college knowingly failed to address a gender pay gap among its faculty. The Legislative Gazette's Jesse King with more. 
The plaintiffs are five full-time women professors teaching subjects from physics to film who say the college in Poughkeepsie has for years systemically underpaid, underpromoted, and unfairly evaluated its female professors. Law firm Leaf Cabraser, Hyman, and Bernstein, and equal rights advocates filed the class action gender discrimination lawsuit in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York Wednesday on their behalf. Melvina Ford is the national legal director and equal rights advocates. She says the pay gap between full-time male and female professors was around 10% in the 2020 to 2021 academic year, with men on average making $153,238 and women on average making $139,322. The university, at the insistence of the professors, did a study uh, in the 2020-21 year that actually showed for the longest-serving post-tenure professors, the gap was getting closer to 20%. In a statement posted on Vassar's website, college president Elizabeth Bradley says the college is limited in what it can say on the matter, citing the pending litigation. Vassar Board of Trustees Chair Anthony Frischa shared his regret over the situation, adding the college has been working with the group, quote, diligently and continuously on the issue of pay equity, end quote, since January 2019, and proactively sharing its analyses on the subject. Ford says the plaintiffs allege they've been trying to resolve the issue for at least 15 years, and the college has recently gotten less transparent about its salaries. They used to disclose the mean and median salaries at each of the professional ranks, and they're no longer doing that. So in addition to equalizing the salaries, uh, the professors want Vassar to make faculty salary ranges and scales public, so there's more transparency about what people are being paid. They want Vassar to establish clear guidelines for performance and evaluation and for promotions. Um, And they want Vassar to engage an independent body to actually facilitate faculty salary negotiations and service expectations. Founded in 1861 by Matthew Vassar, Vassar College was just the second institution to grant degrees to women in the U.S. behind Mount Holyoke College. It's part of the Seven Sisters, a group of seven liberal arts colleges historically founded to serve women, even though it eventually became a co-ed school in 1969. The gender pay gap at Vassar, following Ford's figures, is smaller than the nationwide average. According to the U.S. Department of Labor, women working full-time year-round in 2021 earned 84 cents for every dollar men made in similar positions, and that 16% gap widens for older women and women of color. Vassar's pay gap may also be lower than the average pay gap at many schools. In its annual faculty compensation survey for the 2022-2023 to academic year, the American Association of University Professors found full female professors across roughly 900 institutions received about 82.3% of what their male peers made. Nearly every industry is facing a gender pay gap, but Ford says the difference here is Vassar's history. Its origin story is about ensuring equity between men and women. Uh, And if it can happen at an institution like Vassar, it can happen anywhere. Um, And it just demonstrates how pervasive uh, this gender pay problem is. In his statement, Board Chair Frischa expressed Vassar's desire to resolve the issue, adding it will, quote, continue working to resolve this disagreement with these valued faculty members, whose many contributions are essential to the mission and success of the institution, end quote. 
Thirty-five additional full women professors and emeriti at Vassar filed a joint statement in support of the suit, saying, quote, The harm women at Vassar have suffered goes beyond the loss in compensation over the many years, in some cases decades, we have served the college. Vassar's repeated failure to remedy the ongoing gender wage gap and the implication that our professional contributions are less meritorious than those of our male counterparts constitutes a profound institutional betrayal, end quote. You can read the full statements and the class action complaint at WAMC.org. Vassar College serves roughly 2,500 students with just over 350 faculty. By way of disclosure, the college is home to WAMC's Hudson Valley Bureau. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Jesse King. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. An Adirondack advocacy group is urging Governor Kathy Hochul to get a report on road salt use issued. A number of groups have been waiting for the report, which was expected to be released last year. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley reports. A provision of the Randy Preston Road Salt Reduction Act, signed in 2020, created a task force to provide recommendations for reductions and alternatives to the use of road salt in winter. The task force disbanded in late 2022, but its report has yet to be released. On Tuesday, Protect the Adirondacks sent a letter to Governor Kathy Hochul urging her to, quote, demand that the report is finalized and released as soon as possible, unquote. Protect Executive Director Peter Bauer. It seems that we're going to head into another winter without any type of plan, without any type of blueprint for how it is that we're going to mitigate and reduce the use of road salt in the Adirondacks and stop road salt pollution to many of our major lakes and ponds. Road salt reduction is a priority of ADK action. 26 municipalities in the Adirondack Park have signed an agreement with the group pledging to reduce salt use. Project coordinator Hannah Grawl says the report is important to provide guidelines and be in alignment with state initiatives. Most municipalities that we are working with have been eager to jump on board with this initiative, not only for the environmental impacts of road salt reduction, but also they've seen the impacts that road salt has to drinking water and infrastructure And it's way more cost efficient for them to be tracking and reducing the amount of road salt that they're using, the amount of sand they're using, um, and switching to more efficient techniques. The Road Salt Reduction Act, which created the Adirondack Road Salt Reduction Task Force, was sponsored by Democrat D. Billy Jones of the 115th State Assembly District. He says under the law, the report should have been released last year. This is getting to the point of beyond ridiculous because the task force has done their work. They have all the information. We have sent emails to DOT. We have sent letters. We have called. This is needed. And I'm just frustrated that this report isn't out. Many groups and organizations, local governments, are frustrated that it's not out as well. Bauer blames the leadership at the Department of Transportation for the delay. The commissioner of the Department of Transportation, what we hear is not warm to the report, is not very interested in making some of the significant changes that need to be done. 
We need reforms in our practices so that we can move towards ecologic recovery. In an emailed statement, New York State DOT spokesperson Joe Morrissey said, quote, Contrary to assertions being made, no one is holding up the process to release the report of the Adirondack Road Salt Reduction Task Force. The report is being finalized and we expect it to be released very soon, unquote. Again, Assemblyman Jones. We've heard these exact words said before from spokespeople there. This report should be out already. Just put it out. It's an important issue here in the Adirondacks throughout the North Country, throughout New York State. We need this report out. WAMC has requested comment from Governor Hochul's office. According to ADK Action, more than 190,000 tons of road salt are used on Adirondack roads annually, with the state applying two and a half times more per mile than county and municipal road crews. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. Welcome back to the Legislative Gazette. I'm David Gustina. A 5K run walk called Run Fast is happening worldwide on September 10th to spread awareness of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, which can occur when a woman drinks during pregnancy. And today we're joined by two people intimately involved with FASD on the national and local level. We'll begin by introducing you to Jen Wisdall, who is the COO of FASD United, the lead also on legislation called the FASD Respect Act 2.0. Welcome, Jen Wisdall. Thanks, David. Thanks so much for having us here. Also joining us today is Rebecca Tallou. Rebecca is a resident of Voorheesville and is one of those who is living with FASD. Rebecca was diagnosed at 34 years old. She has her own interesting story, which she'll tell us about in a moment. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Of course, you're both here for two reasons today, to spread awareness of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders and to promote the worldwide 5K run walk on September 10th. Let's go back to Jen Wisdall first. Tell us about FASD United. We're the national organization supporting people with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders and the communities that support them. Additionally, this is the 50th anniversary of the first diagnosis of FASD in the United States. This issue of legislation, I assume that part of awareness is not only making the general public aware, Jen, but the legislatures, not only in the states like New York, but in Washington. And there's a impact week in D.C. from September 18th to 23rd. That's National FASD Impact Week. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you approach lawmakers and also about the legislation that I mentioned, the FASD Respect Act 2.0. Absolutely. Really, FASD has been largely unrecognized in our country. When the first diagnoses came out, there was a huge splash about what was called then fetal alcohol syndrome. And there were one-page ads in the New York Times, a lot of information going out about it. And at that time, there was some legislation that was enacted that created a center for excellence and gave some money to the CDC to look at prevalence and prevention of this disability. And over time, all of that has really eroded 
So if we look at current federal spending on FASD, there is currently $11 million at the CDC for surveillance and prevention, which is only $1 million more than they were originally given back in the early 2000s, late 90s. And then there is a $1 million pilot project at HRSA, and that really it. There's research going on through NIAAA, but that's not legislatively mandated. And this has gone largely unrecognized and then noticed on a federal level. And when we take into consideration, this disability conservatively impacts one in 20 Americans. So there was a active case ascertainment study done. That's where they went out and physically screened first graders in four representative regions of the U.S., a large-scale study done through NIAAA. And they found that as many as one in 20 first graders were diagnosed with FASD. But what was more interesting even than that is that only two had a previous diagnosis. So this is something that's kind of right under our noses, hiding in plain sight, but we're not talking about it. How we come? A lot of, well, I think a lot of it comes down to stigma. You know, alcohol is a legal drug. You know, we all have it. We all use it. I mean, not everyone, obviously. So we're willing to tackle things like drug use, but of all the known substances, alcohol causes far more long-term harm to the developing fetus than any other drugs combined. But, you know, if you think about it, if you're drinking while you're pregnant, and even before you know you're pregnant, because, you know, most women don't recognize pregnancy until between five and eight weeks, and then there's late recognition of pregnancy that happens too. Alcohol is known as a teratogen, so it crosses the placental barrier and goes directly into the fetus. And if their kidneys aren't developed, and even if their kidneys are developed, they're, you know, little baby kidneys, well, what alcohol does in utero, it kills cells. And so anything that's developing at that point in utero in the fetus can be impacted. That's why they say there's no safe time or amount of alcohol to consume during pregnancy. And we know that drinking has gone up substantially since the COVID pandemic. So we know that this is an emerging concern. So we've got a wave of of people with FASD coming, yet there's no federal infrastructure there to support the people who are living with FASD. So the FASD Respect Act 2.0 is a reauthorization bill. It's co-authored by Senators Murkowski and Kobachar, and in the House by Representatives Bacon and McCollum. So this is a very bipartisan, bicameral bill. And it reauthorizes the Center for Excellence. It reauthorizes the programs at the CDC and adds in funding that can go to state and tribal systems to begin looking at our systems of care and how we can weave FASD into it. And I'll tell you a story just to go along with this, that I'm also the adoptive mom of three young adults with FASD. And I was my son's, my oldest son's fifth mom in five years. He was in the foster care system, and his behaviors were so extreme as a direct result of his disability not being recognized and understood that he had gone through five homes in five years by the time he was five years old. And, you know, well-meaning foster parents, well-meaning family, you know, it's a shame that had to happen. Had the foster care system been aware of and been knowledgeable about and been actively talking about FASD, that might never have happened. And I feel incredibly grateful that I get to be the parent to my son. But as his parent, would I want to spare him that trauma? Absolutely. And that's where the Respect Act comes in. 
again, just looking at these silos that we have, because FASD manifests as mental health, but it's not mental health. It's actually physical health because it's brain-based. It often comes up in the, the foster and adoption world. People with FASD may have interaction with the criminal legal system. And, you know, it touches all of these spaces, education, you mentioned learning disabilities being a, a factor. It touches all of these silos, yet none of these silos are really talking about FASD. And it's not something that you can put neatly into, oh, well, this is a addictions issue. Because it's not. This is a disability issue. Well, yeah, it is, but it's not necessarily intellectual disabilities. Only 10% of individuals with an FASD have an IQ that is below average. Most people with FASD have an average to above average IQ. Where they struggle is in the in-between space. And I know Rebecca can probably talk about that far better than I can, but it's in the planning and executive function and being able to navigate life and community in safety due to impulsivity and difficulties with adaptive skills. So it's just this huge multifaceted thing. And, you know, it's very simple to say, oh, well, just don't drink while you're pregnant. It's that simple. It's 100% preventable. But realistically, again, most women don't know they're pregnant until they're five to eight weeks along. And then what if you do have an alcohol use disorder? Is it as easy as just quitting? In the state of New York, for example, FASD is not broadly recognized in your disability system. I know there's been push in your legislature to get legislation passed so that I believe it's OPWDD recognizes FASD as a disability. Currently, only 10% of the people on the fetal alcohol spectrum even qualify to be recognized for disability services in the state of New York. That's a problem. What kind of services would you get as a result of having that designation for FASD? Access to waiver services, uh, disability services, respite care, things like that, things that most people with disability do have access to different therapies. Again, it's called very different things in in different states. Most commonly, it's known as as waiver services. We've been speaking with Jen Wisdall. She is the CEO of FASD United. And your website is what? FASDunited.org? You got it. Okay. (laughs) Well, you have been very, very patient, Rebecca Tulu. Let me reintroduce her to our Legislative Gazette listeners. She is a resident of Voorheesville, New York. She's One of those who's living with FASD. She's even written a book. It's called Tenacity. She's adopted and she didn't get diagnosed until she was 34 years old. She's now part of a group that's coordinating the 5K Run Walk called Run Fast in Voorheesville. That's September 10th. Rebecca, tell us a little bit about your story. Hey, everybody. So my story is I was born in New Jersey, adopted at one month old, moved to Maryland. I was considered healthy until my parents got me home. And then I started to have all these ailments, ear infections every month. I have bronchitis. My doctor said I have failure to thrive, which can be common with those of us with an FASD because I believe my system was still kicking the alcohol out of it. But nobody knew that my birth mom, you know, that she had drank during pregnancy. So I wasn't gaining weight and I was very sick. So my parents took me to get every test under the sun, which all came back negative. No genetic markers, no cystic fibrosis. Nothing was wrong. They couldn't find anything. 
My pediatrician, though, had mentioned to my parents, without knowing the extent that my birth mom drank, that I had facial features of fetal alcohol syndrome. So that was noted. However, this was in 1980, so it was noted and put away because I got tubes in my ears and I started to thrive at the age of 18 months, and that diagnosis went by the wayside. So, you know, fast forward, I did well in school. It was very structured. Those of us with an FASD thrive on structure and routine. My home life was very structured, very routine, and I knew what to expect day to day. And my school back in the 80s was very structured as well. And I did well up until college when my supports were dropped. I was on my own in a dorm. I was expected to do my work on time, which I did, but I fell apart when I tried to student teach and just the executive functioning of making lesson plans and, you know, executing a lesson on my own where each child learned differently. I couldn't do it. And I didn't know why. They had me tested for a learning disability. And this is years before I got diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome. So St. Rose had me tested, and all they said was my executive functioning was off. So that was that. Years later, I found my birth family, and I found out that my birth mother was an alcoholic. I'm not going to give away too much because it is in my book, but it's a sad story. Never got help, and she drank with me. So knowing that, I you know, did some research on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. So I got diagnosed at 34 by a pediatric geneticist, and herein lies the issue with New York State and many other states. There are not many diagnostic clinics for fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. This pediatrician took me on as an adult because I wrote my whole story and sent her photos of me as an infant. And even when I went to her eight years ago, nine years ago, she diagnosed me with a term that's not used anymore. It was fetal alcohol effects. She also wrote fetal alcohol syndrome, so that is what the diagnosis was as well, um, because I do have facial features. They have subsided since childhood, but they're still there. Flat upper lip, flat philtrum, which is the indent in your upper lip, and the distance between my eyes is not what is common for those without an FASD. So I got diagnosed, and then I decided that I would become an advocate for myself and for all of those parents, educators, and children and adults that don't have a voice yet for fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. And part of that involves this 5K run walk in Voorheesville. Tell us about it and how people can get involved if they want. It originated in 2021. I joined forces with FASD United with Jen Wisdall. And the past couple of years, I joined forces with another nonprofit, JFO. It's Justice for Orphans. They are local and they help foster families and they help educate about um, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. So it's virtual. So this Run Fast is a 5K virtual run walk. The one on September 10th is going to be held in Voorheesville at Swift Road Park. It is the Voorheesville High School's cross-country course, 1 p.m. till 4 p.m. You can go to runfasd.org and sign up. It's virtual, though, so if you do not live in New York State or you live in Buffalo or Rochester or anywhere in the United States, Canada, you can sign up for it. You can join a team. You can run on your own, walk on your own. You can even bike on your own. It's just to bring awareness to fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. We've been speaking with Rebecca Tulu, FASD advocate, author of Tenacity, and Jen Wisdall.
COO of FASD United. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk with us on the Legislative Gazette today, and I wish you all the luck as you advocate for a very important cause. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David. And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. Support comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm David Gustino. 